Hi, hello, bonjour, and namaste. This is Out of the Clouds, a podcast at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I'm your host, Anne Muletala. Today, my guest is Anaïs Segesser. Anaïs is a self-confessed seeker, but she's also an impact-driven educational entrepreneur and a learning designer and a coach, among many things. Anaïs also teaches mindfulness and compassion practices in German on Insight Timer. She is the co-founder of a nonprofit called Scaling for Good, and she teaches a regenerative leadership program with the University of St. Gallen, and is generally a fan of transformational group learning. She is dedicated to societal transformation through personal transformation, societal equity, and systems change. Anaïs is Swiss, like myself, and the two of us had the pleasure to meet on Zoom about a year and a half ago when we started our course with the Nalanda Institute for our mindfulness year in contemplative psychotherapy. Now, in our conversation, Anaïs talks to me about choosing a path in business, how she went from management consultant in business engineering and enterprise architecture to find a way to serve and support her own purpose. We also talk about how we can open up and hold spaces for transformative learning to happen. She talks to me about regenerative leadership and what that means. We talk about connection to nature, to ourselves and to our own bodies, how yoga, mindfulness and meditation made their way into her life. All in all, this is a really beautiful, deep, and I would say <laughs> personally illuminating conversation with a formidable entrepreneur and change maker. I am really excited to be bringing you this conversation with Anais, and hopefully you'll enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Happy listening. Anais, thank you so much for being here and welcome to Out of the Clouds. Thank you. It's a true pleasure and joy to be here with you today. <laughs> thank you so much. I really enjoy asking my guests to start our conversation by telling me about who they are and where they come from, rather than first talking about what they do. Work always seems to be the first port of call in a conversation. And I like to color this a little bit differently before we dig into the wonderful work that you do. I hope that's okay. Sure. Okay. So please, Anais, will you tell me your story? So I would say that I'm a person who is continuously seeking. I am really a seeker. And basically, I've had an upbringing that was very um, safe and protected with a loving family. And at the age of 15, I felt like I'm already very grown up and I can go for a year on my own to Australia. And this really was impactful on my life. I was an exchange student, as so many of us are and were. And I came into families and, and situations that were completely different from what I had experienced before. Also surroundings where there was a lot of violence. And, and for many people, just 
not being able to live to their full potential, let's say that. And it completely opened up my perspective in terms of how the human life can unfold and maybe also making me much more grateful of my own upbringing and what was there. And then coming back to Switzerland, I just didn't think about things very much in terms of what the pathway was. Going back to school, then going on to university, starting to study business and management in St. Gallen in Switzerland, and finding myself there, asking myself the question, what am I actually doing here at some point? And so I really want to change my studies. And then I failed my exams. And I had this fixed idea in my head that you cannot quit something because you fail. And so I, I told myself the story that I need to succeed first. And only then could I do the other thing. Oh, wow. I wonder, if you don't mind interrupting, where does that story come from? You mean the story of that you need to succeed? It could probably also be a, a story that came from, from the family and from my parents, especially my dad was someone who had to succeed in life because both his parents and my grandparents came from a background where they were given away as children to work for farmers which there's a, a bit of a story of that in Switzerland. It has only been officially recognized a couple of years ago mm -hmm. that this had actually happened. And so basically, there was in a way the whole story that you need to succeed. And I do think it had an influence on me. Mm, for sure. And so you, I'm guessing, then worked your way to create that success. Yes, in a way, I think this is probably so my initial pathway that I took. There was already a lot of deviations. So after I then, I then finished my studies in the absolute minimum time, repeating the exam and just making sure that it's all done and over with, and then only then could I allow myself to study something else and to open up the perspective. And so I studied for two years comparative religious and Islamic studies and then going into management consultancy and eventually ending up at a large corporate I had to go into this really also feeling of yes I can do this I can be successful in that to allow myself to then take a step back and ask myself but why am I actually doing this and realizing that in a way I didn't care so much about let's say the acknowledgement or the financial reward because I didn't have financial responsibilities also and so then to allow myself to step out and really see what am I seeking to serve and to contribute to. We're going to talk about success a little bit later and what that means in today's world. Why comparative religious studies? I used to love traveling and especially encountering people. And I realized that it was very important to also understand their belief systems because they're so fundamental in a way to also how they would express themselves, how they would relate. And so this was one part of the interest. The second part of the interest was like, what are the questions that humanity holds across 
all geographies. And the third thing was understanding religion also as, as purposeful structures of power. How are these structures created? What kind of structures hold power in place in what ways? So it was really these three interests that brought me to study comparative religious studies. And was the study field as exciting as you expected it to be? I'm curious because it sounds fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately it wasn't. <laughs> so I also I stopped after two years. It was certainly very interesting, but basically the way this, the studies worked at that time is that you would take a deep dive into Jainism or you would take a deep dive into Manichaeism because there's so much you need to understand and learn first before you can even think of comparing anything. And also starting to learn the languages, etc. I realized that maybe it wasn't like fit to answer my questions or interested at that time, but maybe it's more something that you probably need to dedicate your life towards studying. Yeah. That's, I'm glad I asked that question. <laughs> I was very um, idealistic when I came to university and I was studying philosophy and I, I walked out, just was highly uninspired by 90% of the classes I had. Idealism is not, is the romanticism of youth and can get in the way of the practicality of actually getting a degree. At least it, it did in my life. So what happened next? Actually, during my studies, I had a partner who was staying in Japan, working and staying in Japan for a while. So I spent about eight months in Japan as well, uh, which of course was also quite costly. And I had always worked throughout my studies, like part-time. But so I felt now it's actually time to get a real job. And usually what you do if you've studied management and you don't know what you want to do in life, you go into consultancy. And so I went into management consultancy. And yeah. An interesting place for a seeker. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sh I'm sure you learned a lot and that this marked your life in some ways. How did that feel as a fit to you? It didn't feel like a fit at all. Um, there was so much resistance coming up initially. But again, I had this feeling like I need to succeed in this. And after a year, I realized it's okay. I can leave for one and a half years. And I actually decided to quit. And then I let myself be talked into staying another half year, which I would not recommend to anyone ever doing. Right. But yeah, yeah it, it, I was in a place where I got appreciation, acknowledgement, and I knew I could do it. Was ex was expected, but I never really enjoyed it. I have a feeling though that the work that you learned to do, and the fact that you pushed yourself to get to a stage where you're like, I actually am doing this right, that this gave you a lot of tools for what you ended up doing later in your career. Yes, I do think for whatever one does, it's so important to gain different experiences and have the feeling of a certain level of competency mm. in those fields. And it's so helpful to have something like to revert to. Yeah, I see that. And so what was your early career after you decided to leave? So after I decided to leave, I finished my PhD 
And then I went back into management consultancy or not really consultancy, but I went back to working for one of my former customers, which is a large corporate in the financial services sector. And initially, I just did that as an external because I said, no, I don't want to be employed by them. I have other plans for my life. I really wanted to go back and work in Asia. There was some kind of energy drawing me there. And so I worked for them as a consultant for some time. And then they offered me a very good position at that age. And I accepted and worked and actually in, in business engineering in enterprise architecture, which is very far from what I do today. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as well. So maybe you want to give us like an overview of how you got from there to what you do nowadays. So basically, when I was working there, I had a colleague and she was already engaging very much in in the climate crisis. And that was back like in 2009, 2010. And the more I talked to her and looked into these issues and the more I was realizing my career path is going up, I'm earning all this money, I get bonus, but actually I don't want a car. I don't care about a bigger apartment. I still rather go into small hotels, meeting people, then going into all the luxury the question came up, so why am I doing that? Why am I wasting this one precious life and accumulating something that I don't really care about where I could be serving society and do something good? And so eventually I just decided to quit. I wonder, how did you come to that place? Was there a moment, anything catalytic that created that change in you? I can remember one very strong moment where it was like my boss's boss. He came to me after presentation and he just said, Anais, this was an excellent presentation, really great, but I just wish you could show a bit more passion. And in my head, it was like, I went, passion? This? Are you kidding me? I will never be passionate about this. And it's just struck such a clear realization that I knew, okay, I need to change something. Interesting. So I'd like to take this moment because it feels relevant in my mind and we'll see if that fits the rest of our conversation. But have you ever worked on your personal values? This is a very good and interesting question since I also teach courses sometimes on values. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And I would say my personal values are really like loving kindness, compassion, and uh, joy of life. Interesting. I can see how in that boardroom after that presentation, these were not necessarily represented or there was not much of a feeling of alignment with them. Yes. Honey that. And so you made that change and you started to get involved. You have become a a real change maker to address the climate crisis and more. So would you tell us about what you do today? So today, basically, I'm at a place where I support or empower wherever I'm called to support and empower. And this can be very different contexts. This can be teaching and learning. 
This can also be very specific projects like living labs, multi-stakeholder projects, looking at systems change, or it can also be like, I think every week I get people just randomly reaching out to me, for example, through LinkedIn and asking for a call or something. And I have this principle of always saying yes for the first like 20 minutes or half an hour to everyone. I briefly, I now I have co-founded a couple of organizations in the past years, one of which is Scaling for Good, which is really about fostering collective impact initiatives. So bringing together existing organizations, institutions who are already trying to do good in their field, but by coming together could really have a step change in regards to their impact because together they can really also address assistance change. So for example, you could think of biodiversity in urban areas, like now in the city of Basel, you can have all these like single point interventions where you have a cute little project here and there, trying to do something good which is wonderful and we really need these. But what if you could actually bring everyone to the table? So you could bring the electricity companies and the companies from the built environment and the investors and the banks and the civil society organizations and the public sector around the table to see, okay, so where can we create larger scale change in the system? Where can we really shift something? How did you go about creating that company? So that company emerged after I used to co-lead Climate Kick. Climate Kick is the largest public-private partnership to foster innovation and entrepreneurship for climate change mitigation and adaptation. And I used to be part of the executive board and the director for Switzerland. And what became clear to me back then was, on the one hand side, you always talk about innovation and just a new thing. And innovation at that point was really sort of the classic definition of bringing invention to market. You're missing out on everything that is already working and that is already great and which could have much more impact if it was scaled. So that was the basic idea behind it. And so together with another board member, we co-founded the company, which is set up a, as a nonprofit association back in 2016. That's really wonderful, because I think that for me, and I guess for many people, it's hard to understand what is the next step, whether you are in a company yourself, whether you're an individual, how to get involved in order to actually make things move. And sometimes I think we need to also hear from others how they made moves in order to have an impact or to foster, bring their skills to help other people's innovation and impact. I appreciate the idea of finding what's already working and helping scale it. That seems like also like a lower hanging fruit than just building something brand new. That's fascinating. So... In the short bio that I read, 
that was appearing under your alma mater, the University of St. Gallen's Regenerative Leadership Program. I really like this description of how they presented you as an impact-driven educational entrepreneur and a learning designer. And so I understand you've done many things in your life, but I'd love for you to tell me how learning design and education for entrepreneurs became important in your life. The first time that I was exposed to learning design and delivery for potential entrepreneurs was back in 2011, Mm -hmm. when I had, after leaving the corporate world, about a year later, I got my first mandate to accompany a summer school, six-week summer school of about 30 students across Europe in order to build their own impact-driven startups addressing the climate crisis. And for me, it was the first time that I did something like that. And I ended up getting a feedback from some of them like saying, oh, you've been an inspiration. And this was so strong coming from the corporate world because that's not something you often hear, especially on the kind of function that I had here. And I really enjoyed working with people. And so over the years, I also going again into other roles, but then coming back to this. So there are some key questions that I hold. So one is really, how can we open up and hold spaces for transformative learning to happen? So really learning where our meaning perspectives can change. And the other thing is for me, the whole entrepreneurial thinking and action which for me entails taking responsibility for ourselves, for others, for whole ecosystems. How can we foster that? And how can we empower the people who feel that they're ready to do something to actually get going? When did you first experience that kind of transformational learning that happens when someone's holding space and guiding you? So I... I think very consciously that with when I went on a vision quest, which was, I think, about seven, eight years ago, something like that, and where I really realized what it means for someone to hold a safe enough space so for learning to really happen and for deeper insights to not just stay within you, but also to be spoken to really manifest. Yeah, this is a topic that I find absolutely fascinating. And I even took a course to create that transformational design learning. What were the modalities that were the most effective for you when you did this? I think it was very important that it was in a small group. Mm -hmm. So having others there together with you as peers, but also as witness, What's happening uh, makes everything a lot stronger. Then there were two people guiding it together. And I really loved how having two people there, how they brought in different perspectives and how one could really focus on maybe also being there with the next question or mirroring you. And the other one could sense into what else was there in the room and pick that up and also bring that to light. So I think for 
with formational spaces and like having two people guide it, it's really worth a lot. And the other thing was that the whole setting was in nature. And we were mostly spending the time outdoors. And to have the, the support also through being in nature and allowing ourselves the whole sensory awareness there, I think that was very strong. Yeah, that's very interesting. So let's talk about regenerative leadership now. You have co-designed, as I mentioned earlier, for the University of St. Gallen, this program, which is designed for entrepreneurs and leaders who need to reconnect or who have a desire to find a reconnection to nature. Can you explain what you mean by regenerative leadership? So regenerative leadership, uh, was, it, it describes a continuous practice of acting from connection, of being in and acting from connection and connection to both and of yourself, others, nature, and also the, the greater world or the subtle, as we sometimes call it. So I talk a lot about reconnecting, but I don't mean that we need to reconnect actually, but I mean that we sometimes have lost our awareness after connection. Would you mind describing what that's like? It means that you feel grounded, feel centered, and don't necessarily feel separate. It is the strong sensations of interbeing. And they're very different practices where you can experience that. And I think one of the strongest practices for people who come from a very analytical perspective and an, an analytical mind is just to imagine you're taking a sip of water or actually taking that sip of water. So you have these H2O molecules entering your body. Oh, and then what happens with those? They become part of your body. They are your body. And then either through transpiration or when you go to the toilet, part of it will exit your body again. And then it's no longer part of your body. I think it's a very easy thing to just look at. So how can we say we're separate if, we're, if we can be permeable in a way? That's a really interesting way to look at it. When I hear you talk about connection and reconnection, first of all, my heart skips a beat because I've been working on a book for the past year called The Path to Connection. <laughs> so I'm going to pick your brains on that offline another time. I wanted to offer perspective on my end about what I thought connection or reconnection meant for me, because it was actually through the practice of loving kindness that you mentioned, or that's also known as metta, which is a Buddhist meditation where one repeats phrases or mantras that sound like well wishes. And we do that towards ourselves first and then towards groups of others and then all beings around the world. And it sounds a little bit simple and a little bit daft and it can be very mechanical and boring. But I committed to doing it every day for six months straight. And I actually very strangely started to feel a sense of connection to perfect strangers that I was crossing in the street. 
And then I felt something akin to a bee or a spider that I no longer wanted to kill. <laughs> Everyone, you can make fun of me. I'm just sharing my personal experience. And it's interesting because I had no expectations as to what the practice was going to do. But I like the idea that there's an, that you've got at your fingertips an array of tools for people who've got different wirings and experiences to play and discover and to find that sense of connection. But I can't help but wonder if you get a lot of these very analytical, data-driven, success-driven entrepreneurs, how hard is it for them to actually find that sense of connection? I would say very often it's easier than we may think from the outside. I also remember at one place where I was teaching, there was one professor and he was warning me, but Anna, these are all like engineers and scientists and don't do any kind of feely stuff with them. They won't respond to that. And actually, one of the first things that I often do is just a simple listening exercise, deep listening. Being there fully with the other person without getting lost in your own thoughts, without thinking about what could be my next question or comment, without kind of going into what does that trigger in me, but just being there with the other person and really helping them to open up, holding the space for the other person. And very often this thing goes into already kind of a place of a new experience of sensing something, just being there with the other person. And typically this can already open up a lot. And I would say I also have quite an analytical mind. And my sister, she originally studied astrophysics. My husband, he is a scientist. I have a lot of people also around me and typically it's more that they separate these things what belongs into which sphere like also what belongs in the office or not but really or to do what and so it's basically often just working on this permission of giving oneself permission to engage in a practice and for that I really love experiential learning so first offering people an experience and only then maybe let them observe and then go into a sense-making process and then let them experiment with it. And not starting with the whole scientific background of why we're doing that and why it's supposed to work and how it's supposed to work, but saying, just let go of your just preconceptions, just try it out for a moment, as if you were doing an experiment in the lab. Try it out. And yeah, that usually works. I love that. When I guide meditation, particularly body scans or watching the breath, I like to consider that the person is either yeah, in a lab and studying the experience or being an explorer out in the world and just noticing, observing what's going on. And I find that as soon as we become curious, then Curiosity is a wonderful way in to most experiences. But I would love to hear from you because I'm genuinely curious myself about it. What could you say happens to people who have done this kind of workshop 
who are they likely to become later in their own companies as leaders? So they're likely to become people who, you know, openly share questions. And I feel that through openly sharing questions, the questions then are co-owned, which creates a culture of empowerment and trust. And so they become like the, in a way, the, the instillers of change. They're not the ones who singularly change the company, but they become like these nodes around which a new type of space starts to open where people no longer feel that they need to play maybe a role so much. And I think that is very important also in a corporate context. Like I feel one of the maybe issues is that we then often separate our private self to what we think is expected from us. And if we open up with all the questions we hold, it can create also space for others. There's a there's an image that came to mind that I'd read in, I can't remember which book. The analogy was when you squeeze an orange, orange juice is what comes out. We think we're different at the office and at home, but who we are inside is just who we are inside. You can try to wall it up when you're in certain circumstances, but that's still who you are inside. Interesting. Now, you seem to have a very strong connection to nature. I'd love to find out where or when did that happen for you? I think it wasn't one moment, but it was it was a continuous process. And I loved how you talked about practicing metta before the loving kindness. I think it is also a continuous practice to connect with nature and really for me it is from going to living off nature to with nature to in nature and eventually to as nature and this means going out again and actually connecting with what is there around you with the plants with the insects the worms the birds, humans as well, whatever is there. And yeah, I, I really feel this is, I also talk to, I talk to insects. I talk to plants as well and ask them or I touch them. I use all my senses, but maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago, I also didn't like spiders. I would have very ashamed to say so, but maybe 15, 20 years ago in my apartment, I would have taken a vacuum cleaner just to get rid of the spider because I was so afraid of it if it was a small enough one. I think it was a long journey, the journey of continuously realizing or working on, on, on realizing, but without maybe for a long time without knowingly working on it. I think that's interesting. Not you weren't knowingly working on it. This is something that happened gradually over the course of the practices you discovered. And this may be an interesting time for you to tell us, I know you have a strong yoga practice, you're a yoga teacher yourself, you've 
studied extensively with Yoga Shivananda and other schools. How did yoga make its way into your life? It's a very interesting question. I was very privileged to have a mom who studied a lot. So my mom, basically, when she was young, she couldn't study. She wasn't allowed to study from home. And studying had always been her dream. So she went back to university. And then gradually, she studied very different things. So among other things, she studied Sanskrit. And there would be like the chants of the Bhagavad Gita tapes running at home. And so basically, I would say that was probably my first contact with yoga. And then when I was at university, I was, as I was struggling with my management studies, I did everything that I could, which was also interesting and which we didn't have to do. And there was the Bhagavad Gita over lunch reading. And I think that was then the first text of yoga that, that I read. And then a friend of mine was doing some physical yoga practices. I practiced a little bit with her, but not really attend maybe a class here and there. And then it was really upon quitting the corporate world when I had this strong sensation, I need to get back in touch with my body. I felt very disconnected from my body as well at that time. And I was looking for any kind of retreat that I could do where they would also take absolute beginners in yoga. And so at that time, I, I traveled to Thailand and I signed up for a yoga detox. I had no idea what that would be. And th that was also quite transformative. It was really a strong experience. And actually since then, I tried to keep up the practice. And suddenly... A year, one and a half years later, I already did my first teacher training just to get a much deeper immersion. And then after that, I did also five years teacher training. So then really continuing on this. I'm, I'm so happy you mentioned this because I suddenly realized that I really had a similar experience. At some point, I realized I was just really disconnected from my body. Mm. Yeah, I would say it was in my... Mid-twenties. Mm -hmm. My teacher, Tara Brock, likes to talk about our minds as the mental control tower. So we are in like spacesuits and we're up here. And you can imagine this like little inner person just <laughs> making the machine run and feeling really not connected to the machine, just we use it as a spacesuit. And the minute that I started reconnecting to my body through yoga, which took a while because... I did not find teachers I liked in London at first. It took me a really long time. But then it was an evidence. And you know what? I'm going to tell you. I didn't realize how much I was talking about it, but friends kept on buying me yoga-related things for my birthday. <laughs> you know when, like, you're a good cook and your friend always buys you cookbooks? That happened too. And then other people kept on buying me yoga mats. So, Yeah, That's wonderful. Funny. And actually, to this day, one of the very important pieces of work that I'm engaged with stems from that time, because when I did my first yoga teacher training, so that was like at the end of 2011, I was like really kind of on the physical practice, I was by far the least advanced. Huh? And then there was like Denisa there, by far the most advanced, not just in terms of physical practice, also otherwise. And she taught me about 
working with children with special needs through yoga. And I was like, wow, I never even thought that you could do that. And later on, when I was working for Climate Cake, she's in London. So I had to go to London almost on a monthly basis. And I would always stay at her place and we would talk the whole night um, about how she could set up her own center eventually. And then when she did, she asked me to be chair of trustees. And that's how to this day, we have this wonderful yoga center for children with special needs in London at Holloway Road. It's amazing. It's called Mahadeva, is that right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I went on the website yesterday to have a look. It's really wonderful. Huh. It's fascinating to see how journeys are made because I did wonder how you'd become involved. That's fascinating. And hold on, there was something else that I wanted to say that was really amusing, but it just escaped me. Oh, yeah, there's I can't find it anymore, but I saw a meme on Instagram a couple of years ago and I thought it was so hilarious because I'm not the most advanced in my physical practice although I'm decent but I have some shoulder issues and stuff that mean that some postures some asanas are just not the easiest for me but there was a really wonderful meme that one yoga teacher can do some crazy pose and another one can do another crazy pose and they're all trying to outdo each other and another yoga teacher comes up and says I meditate every day and they all go oh so within the yoga world a lot of people still concentrate mostly teachers themselves really focus on the physical practice how did you get into mindfulness meditation and perhaps vedic meditation as well so again in 2010 when i did my yoga detox there was a conference in zurich and the conference was altruistic economics and later on, a book was published on caring economics. The book was called. And dear Tanya Singer presented, among others, like that they have now the neuroscientific evidence that through certain practices, you can change your primary kind of motivation from fear and anger to care and affiliation. And that was absolutely intriguing for me. It was like, wow. And so from that point on, I wanted to develop a contemplative practice, a meditation practice. I also tried out many different traditions and things. And at the Shivananda, basically, we had meditation time in the morning. And they would give you no instructions. You would just sit there. Yeah, And I struggled with that because that my mind was, of course, going crazy. And I, I had been also to Dharamsala and there to the Tushita Center and started some practices there, but not really. But then when I did my five years yoga teacher training, I really had the privilege that one of my peers, he was already the master in an old yogic tradition but now really coming from what we would call meditation. And he was then the first one when before that, I had always like this whole talk about chakras and yoga. Like for me, it was like some pastel colored, weird esoteric stuff that I couldn't really relate at all. But then through his 
fractions, I could actually start feeling these energy centers turning and I discern which way are they turning. Uh, and that was quite, uh, that was quite kind of a game changer in a way. That, that building on a much more refined and also sensory awareness throughout the body and refining that over time. And yeah, I, I also did, I don't know, maybe you've done that as well, Vipassana retreat, like where you do 10 days and you sit for 11 hours a day and you hope like this will really be a breakthrough somehow, even if you don't really have the expectation, you can still somehow there. And then you come from there and you're so in this stillness and you don't even want to talk again, but then you're hit with your everyday life again. And so I also realized that I need to build up a practice, which doesn't happen at retreats, but happens every day. And that has really been a struggle and challenge in building that. Yeah, I think one of the difficulties I have with some teachings of meditation is when it is based too much on what would be the ideal life of the monk because we are not monks, at least I am not one. And most of the people that I teach are not monks as well. And we need to make sure that meditation makes us better at life and doesn't take us away from life. But there's a terminology that I really liked in the yoga tradition that I studied, which is a tradition for householders. (laughs) And I think in in some respects, I've heard some of my teachers say that it's much harder to maintain it and it's much more laudable to maintain a daily practice when you're a householder than when you're a monk. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful, yeah. And I think that's, that's to be expected. Although I'm sure that I've heard from teachers of mine who used to be monks and they said you can be a monk and be competitive <laughs> and want to try and do better at the test or meditate better than other people. So anyway, they have their own situation going. Now, in several articles that I've read, I've seen you mention values as something that you feel needs to change globally in order to help us make a change to address the climate crisis, inequity, and all of the um, current plagues that we have to deal with on the planet. And so what I've read from you, which I thought was very interesting, is you tackled what are the current leading values, which are success measured by material gain that you mentioned was an issue in your own life, possessions, and growth when it comes to business. And that resonated with me a lot because a week ago, just a week ago, I read the newsletter from the fashion editor of the Financial Times. She'd just come back from their luxury conference in Monaco that originally I was meant to attend. and. Indeed, there was one particular attendee that sort of raised the flag and said growth was the main topic of the entire conference. Aren't we just missing the mark? So I believe that you and I see this. There's misalignment between what people's personal values are because 99% of the people that I talk to and that are polled on this will say that their most important values are spending time with friends, looking after each other, love, belonging, game, all of these things. And yet the ruling values are growth, success, possession, accumulation of wealth. How do you suggest that we try to 
address this and question our values as a society. Mm. Yeah, thank you for pointing towards that. So when I talk about the new values and belief systems, I really refer to the ones collectively held. Because, yeah, I think we've seen similar polls and have similar experience with people that each one of us really cares about people around us. We want to be loved, love other people. But somehow when we come together in groups, we don't believe that the others believe what we believe. So it, it has also got to do a lot with being comfortable and disclosing what is actually important to us. And if you witness like business conversations, it's very often there's a line of argument which goes toward, yeah, but we need to reach this target or the PL needs to look like this, etc. What is the bottom line of that? And it is almost as if we cover up our individually but also collectively held beliefs and values with a story that doesn't serve us at all, that doesn't serve life on earth. And so I think it needs these spaces where we can practice to really talk about the things that truly matter to us and do that in, in collective spaces. So that is also, in a way, when I talk about regenerative leadership, the word regeneration basically entails that we can no longer sustain the status quo. So even if we were to sustain just at the level that we are, we've already crossed six or seven planetary boundaries. So we need to regenerate. And we need to do that from a place connection and this place of connection with each other also means that we disclose what we truly care about and that we believe that the others also care about the same. I'm so glad that you expressed it this way. I think you're right. It's about communicating and having those discussions with each other so that we break down the apparent role, the role play that we're all taking part in. I think that's why my favorite question, which is the question I ask all of my guests at the end of the podcast, is what brings you happiness? Because no one says money brings me happiness. Money brings you a lot of things, right? Or a career gains. No one said that. People talk about friends, family, a bath, a good glass of wine, a sunset, a walk in nature. No one talks about any of the things that we cite as the most commonly held, upheld values that are driving our communities and our businesses. I was interested in the word that you used earlier, and I picked it up as well in in another article I read from you about the caring economy. Would you mind touching to what that means? Because I read about this term in one of your articles, and I was wondering, how does the caring economy bring something to the table for us to have that broader discussion on common values? Mm -hmm. So the basic concept behind the caring economy is actually that we don't live from competition and we don't always strive to be the best and have the most. 
but we strive through caring and sharing with others. And it is like coming from this whole notion of also altruism, where in the neuroscientific research, they basically saw that the same areas in the brain are activated when we receive as when we actually give. And so this questions, of course, the whole economic theory of the homo economicus, who is always trying to maximize the gain for himself. And, and so this, in a way, this, you could say this changes everything. If our joy and pleasure and our happiness comes from giving and not from receiving, what does that mean? Nicely worded question. <laughs> now, now, I want to spend some time on that, but I'll put a pin in it and perhaps journal on it later. Now, another theme that I saw emerge in, in your writing was the search for meaning. Let me rephrase. It was the search for meaning and purpose in our lives. Is this something you observed in your students or did you pick this up as well with your entrepreneurs? This is something which I remember one of the coaching sessions when I was just starting offering coaching as well. And there was this woman and all it was about like to for one time to say out aloud that she actually wants to be a change maker who does good for the world that she really wants to be a good human being. And speaking that out loud was such a big breakthrough. Yes, I can acknowledge that. I can acknowledge that I want to be seen as someone who does good. And I think this is something which gives so much purpose and meaning in life. And I feel over the past, I don't know, decade or more, I felt whoever came and approached me, they all had this deep innate wish to do something good. And so maybe in a way that is already then connected to the search for purpose and meaning. Because very often we see, and I mean, I told you my own story. I was doing my job. I was doing my job well. I was getting recognition and acknowledgement and a good salary but I wasn't serving anything beyond myself. And I do think that there's this very big wish of each one of us. And sometimes I ask people this simple question of, so what do you want to do with this one precious life? Mm. You acknowledge that every second is a second of your precious lifetime. Who do you want to be talking to? What do you want to be doing? And very often this can shift a lot. Yeah, I, I find that most of us get caught up in the day-to-day. And I do believe deeply that we should be introduced to this question when we're children, right? What do you want to do? How do you want to show up? What mark do you want to leave? How do you want to serve others? If we had a chance to explore these questions and were given tools to explore them and come back to them regularly, I think that the world would be a far happier place. 
I think that it took me 15 or 20 years to realize that I was out of alignment myself because I'd never asked myself the question because from the outside, it looked really good. It worked on paper, right? According to those global success metrics, I was right on the money, literally. So you also wrote a super interesting piece that you entitled From Doing Well to Doing Good. And I think that kind of matches that question about purpose. Can you tell me about that shift in perspective? So I think many of us are being brought up to do well in life. And this means having a good education, getting a good job, maybe having a family, having a career. At least I think from the people from our generation who are maybe in their late 30s to late 40s, that is what we've been brought up to. But what if we were to switch this question around of not looking at just as us as individuals, but more as us as interconnected beings, as being part of larger communities and ecosystems. And then this question automatically shifts to this, how can we do good for everyone? Something that truly serves the world. And I think this is such an important shift and also for any people in an organization in the business if it's not just about your organization doing well it's like how can you actually do good in the world not only providing secure jobs but really doing something fundamentally Good. Having this, what is often talked about, net positive impact. How can, what would that mean? And I think it, it, it's such a big and shifting conversation that one can have from that. Yeah, very interesting. Now, you did mention that you also trained as a coach. How did coaching land or arrive in your life? So basically, I started also working with these climate entrepreneurs, I would call them. And I felt that you're facing a huge challenge, especially still 12, 13 years ago, because they were basically trying to address a market failure through setting up a business and scaling it through the current market economy. And I realized they needed much more than just my business coaching and business support and very often these were students right off university having finished their masters or phd they're still pretty young who had not had any experience in let's say a traditional work environment who needed a lot of support in finding their own way and i found coaching which is really for me a way through supporting others or empowering them through questions that this can be a great tool, simply. That's how I got into it. Yeah, I'm very in love with it. <laughs> I talk about it all the time. I wanted to touch on a passage from another one of the articles I read and in which you quoted this. You said, nurturing our connection to nature, research indicates we're also nurturing society's potential to achieve well-being and sustainability. And it rings really true when I read it. But when I first saw those two lines, the image that came up in my mind, 
was actually the towers of people in Wuhan and China during COVID. And I was thinking about the billions of humans who don't have access to nature. And so this is not a trick question. It also reminded me how disconnected I felt from nature when I was in my early 20s. And actually, we've already explored that. But around the same time, I was also disconnected from my body, I would say. Do you have any ideas or thoughts that you'd want to share about how can individuals who are deprived from that direct link, how can they find a sense of connection? I think nature is more than the forests somewhere out there. It can also be a ray of sunlight. It can be a drop of rain. You know, it's a breathe on your skin. If you are locked up in, in this tower, maybe you can still open a window. Maybe you can't. Maybe you can look up at the night sky. Maybe you see the moon. Maybe you see the clouds. Probably you're not going to see a lot of stars. So that's not going to work for you. But it doesn't need to be big. The other thing is experiencing ourselves as nature. So this connection to the body is a very important first step. Experiencing yourself breathing experiencing with every inhalation, exhalation, how you expand and contract, just starting there. And if you have the chance to go outside, to go to a park or to have a balcony where you can have a plant, do that. And then if you have the chance to go to a park, sit in that park, sit and just look at a small, maybe 20 by 20 centimeters in front of you and just watch what is there. And for every ant that crawls or for every grass that grows, just notice it. And do that maybe for half an hour, quarter of an hour. And whenever you encounter any kind of what you would identify as a being, so maybe it's a spider, Maybe it's just some grass or flower. But then ask it the question, who are you that I am also? And who am I that you are too? I find it one of the most powerful practices to get into connection. Thank you so much. I'm so glad I asked that question. <laughs> now, as the podcast is meant to explore our lives at the crossroads between business and mindfulness. And I always like to ask my guests to tell me what practices keep them sane, grounded, balanced, or happy. What works for you? So the simplest answer that I can give is breathing. And if I don't have much time, just like consciously inhaling, bringing up the breath and bringing it down again and really making a circle, you know, through my body and spine, that is something which is super grounding and feeling into my body. So like when you do a body scan, try once to feel in between your toes and starting here. It's wonderful. I know what you mean. One of the more relaxing and strange things that I was asked to do was to, to feel up into my inner ear 
And this, I find that wild. <laughs> or also to relax all four corners of my eyes. And every time it, even just saying it, it makes me want to yawn and relax as if I'd known that there were corners and eyes that I could feel into and relax. That's wonderful. So here are some of my favorite questions. And I asked them just for the joy I have of hearing the variety of answers <laughs> that everyone gives me. The first one, which could become a line of t-shirts if I believed in putting more garments out into the world, is what's your favorite word? A word that you could theoretically tattoo on yourself or live with for a while. Gentle. Thank you. I'm really curious, what did you want to become when you were a kid? I think that changed a lot. I recently looked into one of my early, like we used to have these kind of diaries where you would write. And then I wrote an observer of animals. That sort of fits some of what you do. Yeah, it's interesting. No, I completely lost that for about 20 years. But yeah, now it seems to fit. What is the sweetest thing that's ever happened to you? I think there's so many sweet things happening all the time. It touches me small things like talking to the fly and showing it the way out, like which window it should go now. And then it actually does it. And then this like small moment of like joy, surprise, and not being quite sure whether this was now just that the fly wants to go there anywhere or anyway, or whether it hurt me. Yeah. That's adorable. <laughs> what is a secret superpower that you have? I think one is like this love of learning and being very open to just, to defer judgment. To defer judgment. Beautiful. Where is someone that you visited that you felt really had an impact on who you are today? I think there's so many places and encounters. I think each place and encounter probably had a very big impact. It is from swimming for the first time with the eyes open in the Lake of Brienz, which I absolutely love. Thank you. Imagining that you can step into a future version of yourself, What do you think is the most important advice that future you needs to give to present time you? What do you need to hear? Continue to sense what is there and trust your own perception. Beautiful. And that brings me to my last and favorite question. What brings you happiness? <laughs> happiness to me comes from inside. I feel I have the source within me and I've been lucky to find a way to access it. Thank you so much, Nais. It was such a pleasure to talk to you today. Now, if people are curious to find out more about what you do and the various projects that you've talked about, from Scaling for Good to the, we didn't talk too much about the other school projects that you've got, but if they want to get in touch, how can they reach you and find out more? The best is to reach out via LinkedIn. That's really great. 
I'm so grateful for the time that we've had. I wish you a wonderful rest of the day and hopefully we'll connect again soon. Thank you. And uh, yeah, it was really a pleasure talking to you today. So, friends and listeners, thanks again for joining me today. If you'd like to hear more, you can subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to connect, you can get in touch with me at Anvi on Twitter, Anne Mühletaler on LinkedIn, or on Instagram at underscore out of the clouds, where I also share daily musings about mindfulness. You can also find all of the episodes of the podcast and much more on my website, anvmulitale.com. If you don't know how to spell it, it's also going to be in the show notes. If you would like to get regular news directly delivered to your inbox, I invite you to sign up to my monthly newsletter. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to Out of the Clouds. I hope that you will join me again next time. And until then, be well, be safe, and take care.